The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And we are thrilled to welcome best-selling author Elizabeth Lesser to this episode. Her books include Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, and Marrow, Love, Loss, and What Matters Most. Her newest book is called Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the human story changes. And Elizabeth is the co-founder of Omega Institute, which is recognized internationally for its workshops and conferences in wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change. And she's given two very popular TED Talks and is one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, which is a group of 100 leaders who are using their voices to elevate humanity. And it's a very prestigious group. So congratulations on that. And welcome to the show. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. Elizabeth, you have written some wonderful books in the past, but your new book is a little bit different than those. Talk to us about what inspired Cassandra Speaks. I've always been someone who walks these dual paths. I think a lot of us are like this, but this has been a big thing in my life. I've been both someone really concerned with the world. I have some activism that I have followed forever. At the same time, I consider myself a spiritual seeker, someone who's done a lot of work on myself, who helps other people work quietly in the realms of psychology and spirituality. And I've always wanted to marry these two parts of myself, the activist, and then I made up a word for it, the innervist, the person who's who believes like, as Gandhi did, be the change you want to see in the world. But then there's some really bad stuff in the world and I want to go out and change it. And one of those things has always been what seems to me a bad rap women have gotten forever. Back all the way to the stories of Eve and Cassandra and Pandora and things like that. Born second, second in creation, but first to sin. And that kind of lack of trust in women's voices has stuck to us and kept us from being the best we can be and helping the world be the best it can be. So the book is called Cassandra Speaks. And for those of us who aren't familiar with her, who was Cassandra? Well, Cassandra was a princess in uh, Greek mythology. And I kind of emphasize mythology because all of these old stories are myths that somebody made up and told and spoke throughout the ages and they became story and they became society, whether they're biblical myths or Greek myths. And, and Cassandra was a big figure in Greek mythology. She was the most beautiful princess of King Priam, who was the king of Troy, an enemy of Greece. And all the men were after her, including the gods, Zeus, king of the gods. Zeus's son, Apollo, really wanted her. And he promised her a gift that he would give her 
the ability to see into the future, clairvoyance, prophecy. And she wanted that, but she didn't understand that part of the deal was that then she would have sex with him right away. And she took the gift, and then when she rejected his advances, he was furious. So Apollo, as the story goes, spat a curse into her mouth. And that was, you will speak the truth. You will know the truth. You will see what your country needs. You will speak it, but no one will believe you. So she did see the truth. She saw how ridiculous the war between Troy and Greece would be, how all of her family would die from it, how the city would be reduced to rubble, and she would say it, and they would call her hysterical and too emotional and too afraid and stop talking, let the men talk. And eventually everything she predicted came true, and she went mad from knowing the truth but not being trusted. What do you think the impact is on women who feel like they can't trust themselves in their own voice? Because there's a big one. Yeah, the impact is both personal. We all know what happens when you want something, know something, understand something, but can't find the way to say it, or you're living in a family or a marriage or a culture or a corporation or a workplace where you're afraid to speak your truth, either because that's what we've been told as women forever, or there actually is a good reason for you not to. You'll lose your job. You'll get dominated by your mate. All the things that, that keep women from saying our truth. And what happens is we, we either make ourselves sick from sitting on what we know, or we don't get the job we want and our relationships aren't full of truth and energy and power and joy. Or on the big world stage, we see what happens now when some women take over businesses or countries. I mean, look at Jacinda Ardern, for example, in New Zealand. They have dealt with COVID-19 so brilliantly because she led from her core competency as a woman. And I happen to believe that if more women trusted our voices and our instincts and what we think the world needs, uh, the world would be a better place. And you say that many of our foundational narratives that pretend to be about and for all of us were really told only by a few of us and therefore serve only a slice of humanity. What's been the harm in that if most of these stories have been told by men? Well, I really need to be careful to say, and I am careful in the book, they're not all bad stories and their morals aren't all bad. And the people who told and wrote them and continue to tell and write them aren't bad. It's just seriously out of balance. For example, what we think of as the hero's myth, the hero's journey story, what it means to be a hero, what it means to be courageous and strong, um, that is just one slice of what it means to be courageous and strong. Most of the stories talk about courage having to do with war and warriorship and the kind of valiant going forth and, and going into battle. Now, sometimes humans have to do that, but that isn't the only way to be a hero. And I think women have 
a propensity within us, whether it's from nurture or nature, it doesn't really matter to me anymore. Women carry within us, or most women do, this tradition of wanting to actually, you know how we say that under stress, humans fight or flight, you know, that that truism that we say. Well, those studies which started in the 1930s of people under stress or laboratory animals under stress, they were only done on males, male animals and male humans. And under stress and duress, men do tend to either fight or to flee, whether fleeing means running away literally or fleeing through lack of connection with other people. And As recently as 2005, that was the first time a woman researcher, Shelley Thomas, I think I'm remembering her name, at UCLA, did research on women, women animals and women humans. What what do women do under stress and trauma? And she came up with the phrase, tend and befriend. Under stress, women, in general, tend to want to take care of the least uh, powerful, the most vulnerable in a community. And their instinct is to befriend, which is to create a sense of belonging so people don't go into the fight or flight mode. So our hero myths are all about fight and flight, whether it's the Odyssey or the great heroes of the Bible. These are men who use the warriorship notion of courage. Well, there's other ways to be courageous. There's caring, there's tending, there's befriending, there's creating a sense of belonging. And I consider that very courageous. This episode is sponsored by Ritual, and we're excited to tell you about Ritual's essential protein products. In just a minute, we'll tell you about Ritual's special offer for Nobody Told Me listeners. You know, the fact is we all need protein. It's not just about muscles. Protein helps support bone health and so much more. But protein powders can be intimidating. Plus, as we go through life, our protein needs change. So it's important to choose a mix for different life stages. Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's changing protein needs during different stages of life. There's Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and postpartum. Each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Ritual's essential protein powder is a good foundation for your health that's easy to incorporate into your daily rituals. I just add water, shake, and sip, and I love the great taste. Me too. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. There's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non GMO. You may have heard us talk about Ritual's products over the years. We're big fans and really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers, free easy cancellation, and a money-back guarantee within the trial period. Ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our Nobody Told Me listeners get 10% off during your first three months at 
at Ritual.com slash NTM. Ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Visit Ritual.com slash NTM today for 10% off your first three months. Again, that's Ritual.com slash NTM for 10% off your first three months. It's so interesting to me that you talk about how women really do bring people together and they can create this sense of community, which is what I believe. But I also feel like I grew up with this idea that there are a lot of mean girls and that these are the girls that you really need to stay away from and that boys are a little bit more easygoing and you should have them as part of your friend group too, because girls won't always have your back. (laughs) <laughs> when did when did that all start and this idea of of power that you talk about in the second part of the book right this idea of girls being basically like women don't support each other i that has not been my experience my experience i mean i grew up in a household of women i came from a family of four daughters a grandmother a grandma a great aunt my mother one very powerful father in the family, but my experience has always been being in a community of women. And the research in corporations and businesses actually dispels that mean girl myth. Of course, there are some mean girls. There are mean boys. Girls aren't uniformly always nice and good. This isn't a story of like women good men bad right (laughs) but there are tendencies in women that um do go out and connect i mean just look at yourself and look at your friends women tend to have a lot more friends than men do i don't know about the men in your life but it's harder for men to form the kind of bonds that women do the sisterhood of women the friends groups the book groups, the groups, the talking, the communicating. Women have been shamed for some of our best qualities, like you talk too much. Have you heard that before? You know, women talk too much. Oversharing, one of my least favorite phrases. I think undersharing is the real problem. Communication is something that we have honed as women, talking out problems as opposed to going into fight or flight. So where did it come from, the mean girl idea? I think it's it's a long, long tradition of keeping women apart from each other because there's a fear of what happens when women gather, you know, the whole thing of witches and covens. What do you mean witches? It was just a bunch of women <laughs> sitting around cooking and talking. <laughs> you know, you write that when women compete, words like ambitious and assertive take on a negative connotation. Explain why that's happened and how you'd like to see that change. Well, you know, when men play sports or join a political debate or all the the arenas where competition is actually a good and natural and uh, fun thing to do when we pit our selves either physically or intellectually uh, against each other and together come up with something better because we're playing this game. That's all competition means. We have that urge within us, women do, to be our best selves, to push up against others, to bring each other along. 
when men do that, it's seen as the band of brothers and something healthy. When women do it, it's seen as women being unappealingly aggressive and trying to get ahead and showing off and and all the things that are seen in the male arena as natural and exciting and fun. And it's kept us, it's kept women, I believe, from flaunting our, our excellence, our brilliance, our goodness, and, and also bringing the best of us out into, into a greater arena. So then what are some good ways for us to start a conversation comfortably about this amongst friend groups or in a work setting where you have both women and men present? It seems like we often want to stay away from the idea of femininity and women in power when we're in a casual setting. But I feel like those are the settings where change can actually really happen because people are more willing to talk from the heart. Well, what, what was so interesting to me, um, the reason I even came to write the book is that for about 20 years, I've been uh, convening a conference called Women and Power. I started it because about 20 years ago, when I put those two words together in my own life, in my own organization, at home, I felt so uncomfortable. Women and power. Like, you know, I feel that too. That's yeah. really interesting that you say that. Yeah, it's like it makes people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes men uncomfortable. It makes friends uncomfortable. Why? I wanted to understand why. And I started bringing women from many different spheres of influence to speak at this conference, whether they were elected officials or artists or activists or, you know, oh, the first woman astronaut I would bring and the Nobel Peace Prize women women who who from all over the world. I Year after year, I would bring different leaders and thousands of women would come to these conferences. And the I was so surprised how even among very powerful women, I remember once Jody Williams, who had won the Nobel Peace Prize for um, trying to ban landmines as weapons of war. She had walked across fields in countries where landmines were still detonated as a way of, of proving to the world we must get rid of these landmines. She risked her life. And when I asked her on the stage, so where do you get your power from? She said, I don't consider myself powerful. And that, and that blew my mind. I was like, what do you mean? You're very powerful. She said, I don't like the word power. And what I've come to see is that as power has been defined um, over the years, whether it's by Machiavelli or Sun Tzu, the art of war, all the texts, even the, even the uh, corporate how-to books, we define power as synonymous with battle and war and getting something over someone and using fear and manipulation. And I began to explore with the women on the stage and in the audience, what if we redefined what power meant? What if all power means is this desire to make a difference in the world, to shine your stuff, to strut the God-given gifts you were given, but not to do it on the backs of someone else? Is there a way to do power differently? And all the research I have 
looked into all these conversations I've been part of, exhibits that, yes, there is a way to do power differently. And if women get in touch with our core voices, we will know how to do it differently. You touched on the Nobel Prize a moment ago, and I wanted to follow up with that because you write that a good way to measure the ubiquity of the male perspective masquerading as the human perspective is to check out the Nobel Prize winners over the years. Can you share a little bit about that in terms of the balance between male and female winners? Yeah, it's stunning. What The way I even came to look into it was someone suggested to me, why don't you get all the women Nobel Peace Prize winners to come to your conference? And I said, "How? that's ridiculous. How would we fit them all on the stage? Maybe just a few. And then when I looked into it, this was about 10 years ago, there were only six of them oh out of uh, something like, something like uh, 200, because some of them have been given to groups. And I thought, wow, women, we have such a, an inclination within us to work for peace, to work for harmony and cooperation. How is it there can be so few women Nobel Peace Prize winners? Now, since then, um, I think four or five more have been added into that, that small group, which is a sign of success. I mean, I see signs of success everywhere that women are, we are taking our places all over the world. We are trying to do power differently. But if you look at the Nobel Prize for literature, for chemistry, for all kinds of medicine, it, it is really, really telling how few have been given to women. And of course, the answer is, well, women back then in the 1920s weren't in chemistry, weren't in blah, blah, blah. But that isn't exactly true. And let's make sure it really isn't true from now on. What advice would you have for parents of young girls in terms of just preparing them for what they're going to come up against in the world? You think about how they could look at these statistics on paper and feel like, well, I might as well not even try or becoming the first female president. I don't even need to try. What should parents say to these girls to give them hope, but also give them the tools to cope with the fact that they are going to face some challenges? Well, I want that question to be also, and what should we say to our boys because we need to say things to both of them. I'm the mother of sons, and I remember hearing my friends say when my boys were little, I tell my girls, you can do anything a boy can do. And I thought, if I said to my boys, you can do anything a girl can do, that would seem so weird. And, and <laughs> It would. <laughs> and would they feel a sense of, quote unquote, emasculation or uh -huh. that, you know, I can call a girl, you're, you're a tomboy and she feels good. I could tell a boy you're a sissy and he would feel terrible. And so what I want is for boys to be able to be told, you know what girls have done over the years? Uh, caring for children, caring for the elders, taking care of the whole community, knowing what they feel, talking about what they feel, helping people heal emotionally, spiritually, physically. You know that? That's a superpower. 
You need to have that boys too. You need to learn what women have learned. Women have spent the past couple of hundred years learning what men have always done, going out into the world, prevailing, making a living. If women can learn that, you guys can learn this. So I know I'm not quite answering your questions about what do you tell the girls, but I actually feel it's more important. What do we tell the boys? What do we tell the men? That to be a man is to be kind, is to communicate, is to apologize, is to ask for directions, all yeah. the things that men like are like, I don't know how to do that. Well, learn it because <laughs> <laughs> we have learned it. I have had to kind of go against the gears of my female conditioning to learn how to read the spreadsheets and to understand the budgets and to negotiate and to to hone my aggressive nature. And I've also tried to keep intact the parts of me that are quote unquote feminine, which are um, the emotionally intelligent part of myself. I'd like all of us to get to the point where we all have all of those qualities within us and they're not ranked. They're all important. I love the fact that you say the best thing about being older is that you finally trust your own point of view. And I'm wondering in what ways that has changed you. Yeah, it was so long coming. I'm in my 60s. It took so freaking long to get to that place. I had this, what I think so many women have, the imposter syndrome, even though I I knew I was smart, even though I had worked so hard to get into a leadership position, I basically was always afraid I was going to be found out, that there was something. I, everybody worries about that. I loved how you talked about that. Yeah. Uh, we doubt ourselves. Uh, men do too, but but women really do. And women of color and, and women who don't fit the norm, we really doubt ourselves because we don't conform to the qualities of the incumbent leaders. So if you don't conform to those qualities, of course you're going to doubt yourself. So I'm not that interested in just getting our foot in the door that's not going to get rid of the imposter syndrome because then we'll just end up becoming exactly who the leaders have always been. I'm interested in bringing with us the best of our femaleness, even as we hone our other uh, core competencies so that we do come to 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 know who we are and trust who we are and love who we are, love our bodies, love the way our minds work, love our emotionality, love our psyches, uh, and love our female self. What do you think are the unique things that women bring to the pandemic that can help us grow? I'm, I'm thinking back to your book, one of my favorite books, Broken Open, and the subtitle of that is How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. What can women do to really motivate men and motivate each other to get better in, in such a crazy time. Yeah, and use their voices. Well, it is a crazy time. <laughs> and um, I look at how some of the women leaders around the world, you know, the countries that have dealt the best with COVID, many of them, most of them actually, are led by women. And I've been checking out how they do it. And, and one of the ways 
is it's counterintuitive and it's what the all of that book broken open is about it's to admit that it's a difficult time to admit to each other to ourselves to our families to our children to the organizations we lead that like this is hard the way we're kind of struggling and failing and not knowing what to do it's okay it's okay we don't how could we know we've never been through it before so it's okay to admit our our humanness our not knowing and once you do then you're able to look around how is that country dealing with it i don't have to be number one all the time i can expand my sphere of influence i can admit my mistakes i can say masks don't work for two months and then suddenly masks do work and say oh we didn't know now we know so one of the things that um doesn't work is an entrenched ego that must be right and can never admit that they were wrong how do you grow and change and learn if you don't start off saying gosh i don't know becoming an i don't know it all as opposed to a know-it-all. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's I've never heard that. I love that. Elizabeth, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about life or finding your voice or dealing with upheaval or whatever it might be that nobody told you in life that you kind of wish they had and you'd like to pass on to somebody else so they don't have to learn it the hard way? Oh, my God. This is a hard one. <laughs> okay. All the, were, all the others were easy. I know everybody says that. Yeah. It just came to me though. You know, we tell people, find your voice, be yourself, say your truth. But nobody told me that when you do, that's when things really get hard. You know, you yeah. think like, I'm going to tell it, I'm going to say it. And then oh, the, the heavens will open and the path will be clear. No, maybe people won't like you when you do that. Maybe you'll lose some friends. Maybe you'll have to make some big changes. Actually, finding your voice and speaking your truth can make things even harder in the short run. But in the long run, I, I, it is the path to freedom and creativity. That's so true that a lot of times I think we avoid trying to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations. And in doing that, we make ourselves more uncomfortable in the long run. Right. And, and it's easier to stay quiet. It is. It's easier, but it's not necessarily the best idea, that kind of discernment. Yeah. Do I speak now? Do I not speak now? That's a good thing to hone. And how can people connect with you online and learn more about the new book? I have a website where you can learn about all my books and other things, and it's elizabethlesser.org. And what about social media? Facebook, Instagram, got them all. If you go to my website, you can just click on them. All right, fabulous. Elizabeth, this has been such a joy to talk with you. We knew it would be, and you it didn't flew disappoint. By. Yeah. yeah, so many more questions. Yeah. And we'd love to ask you about the other books too. Don. Maybe you'll come back again. I will come back. This is fun. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Our thanks to Elizabeth Lesser, whose latest book is called Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the human story changes. And again, her website is elizabethlesser.org. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Nobody Told Me. 